Welcome to Renaissance Online Radio. You can find us at renaissanceonlineradio.com or you can reach us by email at renaissanceonlineradio at gmail.com. Now here's your host. Hello, everybody. Today's going to be a little bit different from prior podcasts. Today we're going to be wide open nerd. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to explore today some of the ideas that I've been ruminating on about where my area of actual expertise, which is anesthesia, intersects with one of my areas of greatest lifelong interest. That is space travel. Now, you might wonder how in the world I would find commonalities between those two, but I don't think it'll take long for me to remove those questions from your mind. So what does the human body need to be alive? If you're a student of developmental psychology or have been at any point, you've been exposed to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Imagine it as a pyramid with a base that is made up of physiologic needs, built upon that the needs for safety, above that love and belonging, above that esteem, and at the top self-actualization. Later on, Maslow also added self-transcendence to the topmost point of the pyramid, but to be alive physically only requires the first and some of the second. When we speak of physiologic needs, those include air, water, food, protection from the elements, and some might include procreation. If you think about it, a newborn baby can pretty much take care of the air piece of that, um, unless it's got some problems, but it still has to have provided for it water, food, and protection from the elements. A patient undergoing general anesthesia relies on the anesthesia team to provide what the patient would normally do for him or herself, such as breathing, water, not so much food, and when I say food, I mean nutrition, uh, but definitely also relies on us to help control the patient's heat the patient's temperature. The way we do these things is uh, somewhat complex, but I'll break it down into relatively easy-to-grasp terms. As far as air, we provide the force to push air into the chest through a breathing tube, and the composition of that air is made up of oxygen, as we normally breathe, but often in higher concentrations, Nitrogen, possibly, or nitrous oxide taking up the other um, fraction of the air. The amount of air an awake patient determines by unconscious control of breathing. In the anesthetized patient, we have to make sure we don't breathe the patient too much or too little. Otherwise, we tend to blow off too much carbon dioxide or not enough carbon dioxide. If you think of carbon dioxide as the smoke of the fire of life. That's an easy way to think of it. Um, And if you have too much of it, your blood becomes acidic. If you have too little, your blood becomes alkaline. 
And if you go too far either way, the proteins don't work right in your body. So that's fairly critical that that be normalized. We also maintain the level of circulating fluid by estimating how much uh, fluid, how much water, and how much blood are being lost from the body during the surgery and replacing as needed. As far as nutrition goes, the patient comes in hopefully with a working liver, and so the ability to maintain a short-term level of glucose in the bloodstream to feed the, uh, how should I say, feed the uh, metabolic processes is usually not an issue in most cases, although it can become an issue, especially in diabetics and in people with liver failure, and so we may have to replace uh, sugar or even um, even give a lipid emulsion, etc., in extreme cases. Heat loss is another major problem if we are doing any major surgery, because if you think about it, our way of controlling heat in our body involves uh, either adding or taking away clothes or changing the temperature around us. Either way, it takes a conscious effort and the patient is now unconscious. So we have to monitor the temperature of the patient and then either warm or cool the patient depending on uh, the surgery, what's going on at the particular time, and the patient's own temperature. So all of those bottom-line Maslow's needs, the physiologic needs, are our responsibility. The second level of Maslow's hierarchy, security, often is thought of as dealing with personal security, financial security, health and well-being, and safety from accidents. Now, that is really only applicable to anesthesia in the safety uh, from accidents and the health and well-being perspective, and specifically that would be making sure that the equipment that we use won't hurt the patient and making sure that while we are working inside of a patient's body, we don't inadvertently provide them with a bacteria that can then go on to cause a post-operative infection. Okay, so what does this have to do with spaceflight? Well, if you think about it, spaceflight requires all of those same items. You have to have air, you have to have water, you have to have nutrition, and you have to control heat. Along with that, you have to make sure that the space traveler has a reasonable level of safety from accidents, and of course you want to make sure that no acute illness is likely to occur. So let's break this down into its individual components. Air. Well, in the patient, we have varying degrees of oxygen need, and so we may vary the concentration of oxygen up or down uh, depending on the patient's response. In an astronaut, we assume that the body is essentially healthy, and so as long as we have adequate oxygen, uh, concentration of oxygen and partial pressure of oxygen in the breathed air, we should be fine. Okay, that's the oxygen part, but what about the other parts? Well, nitrogen is not consumed, and so assuming you don't have a complete loss of your air pressure, you don't need to add new nitrogen. Um, but 
What about carbon dioxide? Have you watched uh, Apollo 13, the movie? If you have, you remember that one of the problems they ran into was a very high level of carbon dioxide in the lunar module as they were flying back from their uh, trip around the moon. And if you recall, they ended up taking the what they called scrubbers in the movie, and uh, I believe uh, NASA did re- use the term scrubbers, uh, to... They took the scrubbers from the command module into the lunar module and modified ducting in such a way that air was passed through these scrubbers. Well, scrubbers are... The the traditional way to to make scrubbers is to use what's called soda-lime. It's a sodium hydroxide mixture, and it captures the carbon dioxide out of the air. Now, here's where we intersect with anesthesia. An anesthesia machine is... A closed circuit. We add a little bit of air and we take out a little bit of extra air, but in general, you are rebreathing the air that you just breathed minus what carbon dioxide our scrubbers pull out. So it's kind of cool. Um, it, it conserves on the anesthesia gases and it conserves on the use of oxygen. Now, you might ask, why do we worry about, about the uh, nitrogen? Well, Apollo 1 taught us all we needed to know about too much oxygen. If you're familiar with Apollo 1, you'll recall that we lost three astronauts on the launch pad during a test because the atmosphere inside of the capsule was 100% oxygen. A small fire very rapidly developed into an out-of-control blaze that, that burned the astronauts to death. Along with that, for a longer-term flight, more than a couple of days, you start to run into considerations such as free radical damage from too high a level of oxygen. And so... A an oxygen-rich environment is not really conducive to long-term health. That comes as a surprise probably to a lot of you, but that's uh, certainly a consideration when we add a second gas, such as nitrogen, to the air that we would have in a space uh, spaceship, space station, or even uh, a ship designed for travel, such as to Mars. Now, when we talked about air in the anesthesia environment, I did point out that we try to conserve and have a closed system. Well, by necessity, a spaceship has a closed system. All of the things that we normally have in uh, plentitude on our planet, we have to find ways to conserve. So what about water? In the closed environment of a space station... Or spaceship, water from evaporation, of course, would add to the humidity in the station, and therefore you would need to have some sort of a dehumidification system that would capture the water and return it to liquid state so that it can be reused. Uh, body loss of water through uh, urine production could be captured and reprocessed, believe it or not, take out the impurities, and again, you have 
clean, drinkable water. Regarding food, because the space station is in a relatively low Earth orbit and routinely gets supply ships uh, flown up from Russia, the Soyuz uh, space, space capsules, uh, bringing uh, supplies and food, there's not a dependence on station-grown food for uh, astronaut survival. But on a long-term flight, such as a Mars mission, one would certainly prefer to be able to grow one's own food. Well, what, uh, what is food? What, uh, what nutritional pieces do we need? Of course, there are the vitamins, those things that we can't make on our own. But there's also glucose, protein, and fat. All of these are carbon molecules that are built by photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is the process of turning light energy into higher-level synthetic molecules, such as taking carbon dioxide and turning it into sugars or proteins or even fats. If you think of carbon dioxide as a dead carbon, that's an easy way to think of it. Uh, and when I say that, I mean it's had its energy removed, basically. Um, if you take that and recombine it using the energy of light, which is what photosynthesis is, then you can recreate, recharge you might think of, uh, the carbon molecules into usable energy for us again. Of course, when you think about it, we are all solar-powered organisms because we get our food from solar-powered trees and plants. Now, it's probably not practical on a space station, which by very definition will have limited area. It's probably not possible, or especially not practical, to grow all of the food you intend to eat in its, in its form that you would expect it on Earth, such as a garden. In other words, you would have to have either hydroponics or dirt, and you would have to uh, have space for the plants to develop and light and all of those niceties. So what other option might we consider? Well, what about microscopic plants? Algaes. Now, you might, you might think that sounds gross, but spirulina. You've probably heard of spirulina. It's one of those kinds of algae and it can be grown in a water bath and then processed out and it can provide quite a bit of nutrition all by itself. Now once you got to your destination, let's say Mars, I think uh, I think the human organism would far prefer to eat things that are more familiar such as I don't know maybe even squash. Um, plants could possibly be grown there, but they would still have to be in a in a closed environment. But that's uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves there. What about heat? Well, in space, we can't use a lot of the things that we normally use to control heat on Earth. On Earth, we use radiation, convection, conduction. Those terms should be familiar to most people. Convection and conduction are what we usually think of 
when we think of how we cool our bodies. Um, in space, neither of those work. Conduction, of course, is when you touch something and your heat energy moves away from you into that, or the other way around. Convection would be where you turn the fan on you and the, and the fan moves air molecules over you, and those air molecules um, also can move heat away. Uh, the other um, method of losing heat, evaporation, also you know, works really well here, but in the closed system of a space station, losing heat can become a little more challenging because you have to use radiation alone. You can't use evaporation because evaporation requires the loss of water. You can't use convection or conduction because you don't, you're not touching anything and there's no air molecules. And so that leaves you with radiation. So you use uh, such things as paint to determine how much to, to help determine how much thermal energy the space station absorbs from the sun. And you also have radiators that are specially designed to radiate that heat out. So as far as safety, well, the entire space station should be designed to maximize the safety of the, of the astronauts inside. Of course, we can't control for all eventualities, but for the most part, once we leave the debris-filled space uh, near Earth, then the likelihood of an external force causing a problem is minimized. The risk of damage or failure within a, an onboard system, of course, still exists, but that's where quality control comes in before launch. As far as health goes, you would expect that astronauts would be selected for their level of good health. So uh, chronic diseases you would hope would not show up at least during the uh, first year or two in space. But of course that still leaves acute illnesses, traumas, uh, things like appendicitis, which of course we get around by making sure the patient, the patient, the uh, astronaut has already had their appendix taken out, but uh, there's still trauma. And what do we do about that? Now, this is an entirely uh, separate discussion of how to provide medical services and specifically surgical and anesthesia services where there is no hospital in space. We don't realize how important gravity is to, well, to most things, but in this discussion, to surgery and anesthesia until gravity is no longer available. So you think about, well, where does bleeding go? Well, in the operative field, bleeding goes to the lowest point. Lowest is defined as the closest to Earth. Well, Earth is a few thousand or hundred thousand miles away, and down, well, there is no down. So bleeding stays where it is. Well, that does, does actually provide some advantages to the surgeon because you don't have to figure out where the blood is coming from because it's right where it's coming from. But, well, we can't use drips for IV fluid because, well, there's nothing going to drip. There's no gravity. So all fluids would have to be pumped. 
our inhaled anesthetics, you know, really I wouldn't want that inhaled anesthetic to be present on board a flight because I would never want it to have the possibility of being released into the onboard atmosphere. I don't know that there would be a way to get it out without wasting all of the gas that is pressurizing the ship at the time. So that leaves us with regional techniques and with IV anesthetics. Now, regional techniques are fine, but it takes a great deal of skill to actually place a regional block. When I say regional, I'm talking about nerve block, how to numb an arm or a leg. has very little value for, um, for surgeries on the torso. Of course, one would hope one would not have to do such a surgery, but in the event of trauma, you don't know what you're going to have to deal with. So that leaves us with IV anesthetics, which I would lean more heavily toward propofol and toward ketamine. Those are the, the those are two of the injectable anesthetics that can induce enough anesthesia to allow surgery. Now, of course, you're not expecting to have a surgeon on board, but what if you do? What if it uh, is a flight that is large enough with a plan to stay on the destination planet, Mars being the planet of uh, closest proximity and convenience. So, you know, these, these topics come up. What about spinals? Can't do spinals. Well, you could. I'm not sure that I want to. It's really hard to keep the patient in position, for one thing. Uh, for another, we can't plan on the uh, spinal anesthetic going where we expect it to because here on Earth we plan on gravity helping control that. Well, in the space station or in a spaceship, we do not have gravity, again, unless we used a spinning uh, of the ship to create uh, artificial gravity through centrifugal force, which, you know, that's, that is a consideration and may end up being done on a, on a long-distance flight. Really, the topic of space surgery and space anesthesia is a topic that deserves its own podcast or even its own set of lectures. And as I am by no means an expert in the space aspect of these topics, it should be left to probably somebody else. But it's fun to think about, you know, what the eventualities could be, as long as you're not the patient. Assuming we made it to Mars, there are a number of non-Earth-like aspects of Mars, not the least of which is it's 50% further from the Sun than Earth is, and so you would have the expected decrease in solar radiation, also known as light and heat. And the atmosphere on Mars, our atmosphere on Earth is about 14.7 pounds per square inch on Mars, it is 0.087 pounds per square inch. So that's approximately 0.05% of the pressure of Earth. Uh, That would be essentially unsurvivable in any fashion for more than a few seconds. So once you get to Mars, you you, you do have some gravity. You've got about half, actually it's 3.7 meters per second squared, which is uh, closer to a third of what gravity is on Earth, but you do have some. 
but uh, you still have to be within a pressurized structure such as uh, such as the space station, except you'd have to figure out how to do that on the surface. We have not mentioned the other levels of Maslow uh, beyond the initial uh, discussion at the beginning of the podcast. The love and belonging level, the question becomes, do we send married couples? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. That's, that is far outside of my wheelhouse. Uh, team building, of course, would be critical before we ever got uh, into space also. Uh, esteem, you know, if you, uh, if you haven't gotten there by now, you probably aren't an astronaut. Self-actualization, I really can't think of something that would be more just absolutely amazing than being one of the first people to visit another planet. This has been a little bit longer of a podcast, and if you've made it this far, you're probably almost as nerdy as I am, if not more so. So thanks for sticking with me this far. As always, I welcome any and all feedback and would enjoy any expertise that you might send my way about this topic or others. Again, thanks for listening. That's all for this edition of the Renaissance Online Radio Podcast. We invite your participation by sending email to renaissanceonlineradio at gmail.com or by commenting on our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at renaissancerdo. Thanks and have a great day.